Hi, I'm Josh from New Jersey, and for the next Historia Obscura podcast, I would like to know more about the Doolittle Raid in World War II. July 4th, 2017 was a typical day for most Americans. Fourth of July barbecues were being held across the country as people celebrated the anniversary of the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. But across an ocean, a breakthrough occurred that shocked the United States. North Korean state media released a video of a missile test confirming that the Hwasong-14, an ICBM capable of carrying a 500-kilogram nuclear warhead, was also capable of reaching the territory of Guam, the state of Hawaii, and even the west coast of the continental U.S. With that, America's most prominent enemy became even more of a threat. Granted, the U.S. does have significant ICBM defenses that would likely prevent a North Korean missile from ever reaching American soil, but the thought that such an unstable nation had the ability to potentially make that happen was frightening. It was a prime example of how being within bombing range of another nation decreased American morale. Conversely, a nation being in bombing range of another can boost the morale of the latter. During the Cold War, America had missile silos in Turkey and Italy. This put the Soviet capital of Moscow within striking range of American ballistic missiles. It put an immense amount of pressure onto the Soviets, which in turn boosted American morale. However, this morale was short-lived, as in 1962, the Soviet Union deployed missiles to Cuba, only 90 miles away from the state of Florida. This caused a massive panic in the U.S., as well as the ensuing Cuban Missile Crisis, which is almost definitely the closest the world has come to ending. Needless to say, being in striking range of another country's bombs, nuclear or not, can be a serious blow to morale. But in the right circumstances, another country being in your bombing range can significantly boost your morale. One important instance of this happened during World War II. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the seventh episode of this podcast, and I'm glad you're still around. Special thank you to Josh from New Jersey for suggesting this episode. I have other big news. I now have a Patreon. If you want to help benefit this podcast and earn rewards in the process, head to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura. You'll help keep the podcast's lights on, or shall I say, keep the audio on. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. December 8th, 1941 the United States was reeling after a Japanese attack the previous day on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. 
Over 2,000 Americans had been killed in the attack, and American morale was plummeting. Many Americans believed that, while the United States was within Japanese bombing range, the reverse was not true. The top priority of President Franklin Roosevelt was to dispel this idea, and to help restore faith in the minds of the American public that the ensuing war would not be one-sided. The problem was, these fears were partially true. See, the Japanese were barely able to pull off the attack on Pearl Harbor. The bomber planes used in the attack had been launched from aircraft carriers a few hundred miles north of Oahu. Many of these planes crashed into American ships in kamikaze attacks, while the remaining planes barely made it back to Japanese-occupied Wake Island. The planes had traveled over 2,000 miles in total, and their fuel tanks had been expanded to complete the raid. A planned raid on Japan, meanwhile, would have to be launched at least 200 miles away from Tokyo, just outside the area in which the most Japanese submarines patrolled. Then, they'd need to land 2,200 miles away in China, bringing the total distance to 2,400 miles. With a completely expanded fuel tank with a capacity of 2,440 miles, the mission had a margin of error of 40 miles. It would not be easy, but it was still possible. But President Roosevelt needed the right man to plan the raid. Enter James Doolittle. Born in Alameda, California in 1896, James Doolittle grew up in Los Angeles. When he was 13, he attended an air show at Dominguez Field. He developed a fascination with airplanes, and he dreamt of one day becoming a pilot. In 1917, he took a leave of absence from college to join the Signal Corps Reserve, becoming a second lieutenant and finally achieving his dream of flying. In 1922, Doolittle made the first cross-country flight ever from Jacksonville, Florida to San Diego, California. Ten years later, he set the world high speed record at 296 miles per hour. He soon retired from air racing, returning to active duty in the Army Air Corps. In the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, Doolittle was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, and President Roosevelt tasked him with planning a retaliatory raid on Japan. Doolittle's plan was for 16 planes to be launched from the USS Hornet aircraft carrier. The lead plane would be piloted by Doolittle himself. These planes would spend a maximum of 7 hours bombing Japanese targets. The targets were primarily military and industrial locations, as opposed to areas with civilian populations, like Pearl Harbor. On April 1, 1942, all 16 planes, as well as the crewmen that would be conducting the raid, were loaded into the USS Hornet at the Naval Air Station in Doolittle's hometown of Alameda, California. Every aircraft carried four bombs, each weighing 500 pounds. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you do not know about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make your own podcast. 
Anchor gives you all the tools you need to record, edit, and publish a podcast about anything you're passionate about, whether it's sports, cooking, art, politics, obscure historical events, or anything else. You also don't need to have to go through the long and potentially expensive process of distributing your podcast, as Anchor automatically publishes it to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. You can podcast from the comfort of your couch, so long as you have a computer or phone with you. You can easily make money through podcasting without having to seek out sponsors yourself, since Anchor gives them to you. And the best part is, it's free. You don't have to spend a penny. If you want to make your own podcast, go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app on iOS or Android to get started. By April 18th, the Hornet had reached its intended launch point 200 miles away from Japan. Suddenly, the aircraft carrier was spotted by a Japanese picket boat. The boat radioed an attack warning back to Japan. It was then sunk by the nearby USS Nashville. Five of the 11 crew members drowned, while the chief petty officer of the ship committed suicide. The remaining five Japanese crew members were captured. At this point, the planes were launched, and they began the six-hour flight towards Japan. When the bombers reached Japan, the crews split up and started bombing different targets. Ten targets were bombed in Tokyo, two were bombed in Yokohama, and one each was bombed in Yokosuka, Nagoya, Kobe, and Osaka. Three Japanese fighter jets were shot down during the raid. After the bombings, the raiders realized that they would not have enough fuel to reach their intended airfields in China. Because of this, 15 of the 16 planes crashed in or off the coast of Japanese-occupied China. Three crewmen were killed in action. 20-year-old Corporal Leland Factor was shot by Japanese forces as he bailed out of his plane, while 23-year-old Sergeant Donald Fitzmaurice and 29-year-old Staff Sergeant Billy Jack Dieter drowned after their plane crashed into the sea. The other eight members of Fitzmaurice and Dieter's crew were captured by Japanese occupying forces. They were convicted in a kangaroo court of strafing civilians, which they did not do, and three were sentenced to death. On October 15, 1942, 1st Lieutenant Dean Hallmark, 2nd Lieutenant William Farrow, and Corporal Harold Spatz were executed by firing squad. Before the rest of the captives were liberated at the end of the war, First Lieutenant Robert Metter died from starvation in 1943. Doolittle's plane was the first to reach China. After bailing out of his plane north of Chuzhou, Doolittle landed on a pile of manure preventing his previously injured ankle from breaking. Many of the raiders were found and helped by Chinese villagers. Doolittle's crew was led to safety by American Baptist missionary John Birch, while the crews of First Lieutenants Harold Watson and Edgar McElroy were aided by the Irish Bishop of Nanchang, Patrick Cleary. The Japanese would later retaliate against the Chinese who helped the raiders, burning the cities of Nanchang and Ningbo to the ground. 
The surviving raiders who made it to China continued on to the Kuomintang-controlled capital, Chongqing, where they were repatriated to the U.S. However, there was still one crew unaccounted for. You may recall how I mentioned that only 15 of the 16 planes made it to China. Well, that was because one decided to land somewhere else. Seeing that they were low on fuel, the crew of Captain Edward York decided to instead land in the Soviet Union. But this was problematic. See, the USSR had not declared war on Japan yet, so they were obligated under international law to intern any soldiers they found within their borders. Sure enough, upon landing at Vozvyshenka Air Base near Vladivostok, York and his crew were captured, and their plane was confiscated, meaning that yes, none of the planes used in the Doolittle Raid were ever returned to the U.S. While the captive crew was treated well, the Soviet Union was unable to repatriate them under international law. To solve this issue, the POWs were moved to a camp in Ashgabat, next to the border with Iran. The Soviets agreed to turn a blind eye and allow the Americans to escape into Iran, which, if you listen to my episode about Iran, you'll know was controlled by the British at the time. The POWs were finally free. Due to the three deaths and eight POWs taken by the Japanese after the raid, as well as the minimal damage incurred on Japan, Doolittle believed that the mission was a failure. He even expected to be court-martialed for losing all 16 planes used in the raid. However, upon returning to America, Doolittle was in fact lionized. It turns out that the raid was a major victory for the US, because it proved that Japan could in fact be bombed. The fearful Japanese bum-rushed into the Battle of Midway, and this lack of planning led to America's crucial victory in the battle. Two days after the raid, while he was still in Japan, Doolittle was promoted to the rank of Brigadier General. In November of 1942, he was promoted to Major General, and after World War II ended, he retired from the Army as a Lieutenant General. He became a staunch advocate for desegregating the military, and he spent much of the rest of his career working as a test pilot in Elizabeth, New Jersey. In 1985, Doolittle finally received his fourth star, and he was promoted to the rank of general. He died on September 27, 1993, in Pebble Beach, California, at the age of 96. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. Thanks again to Josh from New Jersey for suggesting this episode. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, Go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. 
And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.